Hello, and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. McDonald. In this episode, I'll be reading and discussing the section of Immaculate Perception in Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. So let's get started. When the moon rose yesterday, I thought it was about to give birth to a sun. It lay on the horizon so broad and pregnant. But it was a liar with its pregnancy, and I will sooner believe in the man in the moon than in the woman. To be sure, he is not much of a man either, this timid night reveller. Truly, he travels over the roofs with a bad conscience, for he is lustful and jealous, the monk in the moon, lustful for the earth and for all the joys of lovers. No, I do not like him, this tomcat on the roofs. All who slink around half-closed windows are repugnant to me. Piously and silently he walks along on star carpets, but I do not like soft-stepping feet on which not even a spur jingles. Every honest man's step speaks out, but the cat steals along over the ground. Behold, the moon comes along cat-like and without honesty. This parable I speak to you, sentimental hypocrites. To you of pure knowledge, I call you lustful. You too love the earth and the earthly. I have divined you well, but shame and bad conscience is in your love. You are like the moon. Your spirit has been persuaded to contempt of the earthly, but your entrails have not. These, however, are the strongest part of you, and now your spirit is ashamed that it must do the will of your entrails, and follows byways and lying ways to avoid its own shame. For me, the highest thing would be to gaze at life with that desire, and not as a dog does, with tongue hanging out. Thus speaks your mendacious spirit to itself. To be happy in gazing, with benumbed will, without the grasping and greed of egotism, Cold and ashen in body, but with intoxicated moon eyes. For me, the dearest thing would be to love the earth as the moon loves it, and to touch his beauty with the eyes alone. Thus, the seduced one seduces himself. And let this be called by me immaculate perception of all things, that I desire nothing of things except that I may lie down before them like a mirror with a hundred eyes. Oh, you sentimental hypocrites, you lustful men, you lack innocence and desire, and therefore you now slander desiring. Truly, you do not love the earth as creators, begetters, men joyful at entering upon a new existence. Where is innocence? Where is the will to be getting? And for me, he who wants to create beyond himself has the purest will. Where is beauty? Where I have to will with all my will? Where I want to love and perish, that an image may not remain merely an image, loving and perishing. These have gone together from eternity. Love to will, that means to be willing to die too. Thus I speak to you cowards. But now your emasculated leering wants to be called contemplation, and that which lets cowardly eyes touch it shall be christened beautiful. O oh, you befowlers of noble names! But it shall be your curse, you immaculate men, you of pure knowledge, that you will never bring forth 
even if you lie broad and pregnant on the horizon, truly you fill your mouth with noble words, and are we supposed to believe that your hearts are overflowing, you habitual liars? But my words are poor, despised, halting words. I am glad to take what falls from the table at your feasts, and yet with them I can still tell the truth to hypocrites. Yes, my fish bones, shells, and prickly leaves shall tickle hypocrites' noses. There is always bad air around you and around your feasts, for your lustful thoughts, your lies and secrets are in the air. Only dare to believe in yourselves, in yourselves and in your entrails. He who does not believe in himself always lies. You have to put on the mask of a god, you pure. Your dreadful coiling snake has crawled into the mask of a god. Truly, you are deceivers, you contemplative. Even Zarathustra was once the fool of your divine veneer. He did not guess at the serpent coil with which it was filled. Once I thought I saw a god's soul at play in your play, you of pure knowledge. I once thought there was no better art than your arts. Distance concealed from me the serpent filth and the evil odour, and that a lizard's cunning was prowling lustfully around. But I approached you, then day dawned for me, and now it dawns for you. The moon's love affair had come to an end. Just look, there it stands pale and detected before the dawn. For already it is coming, the glowing sun, its love of the earth is coming. All sun love is innocence and creative desire. Just look at how it comes impatiently over the sea. Do you not feel the thirst and the hot breath of its love? It wants to suck at the sea and drink the sea's depth up to its height. Now the sea's desire rises with a thousand breasts. It wants to be kissed and sucked by the sun's thirst. It wants to become air and height and light's footpath and light itself. Truly, like the sun, do I love life and all deep seas. And this I call knowledge. All that is deep shall rise up to my height. Thus spoke Zarathustra. So kicking off the section, we have quite an interesting image set up by Nietzsche of a religious monk living on the moon basically and then we have this whole dynamic between the moon and the sun and the earth all coming together and it's to say well what does the moon represent is ultimately darkness when it shines over everything there's no life that springs forth from it and what does the sun represent is life and for Nietzsche here we have that whole connection into life, desire, creativity, everything all coming forth from the sun. But what does ultimately religious people do is that they live on the moon in this darkness looking upon the earth. And so we have this whole idea of a religious outlook being in complete denial of their own bodily desires and hence why we have this whole relation into you forget your entrails and talking about entrails which is your intestines of course in this action because the same well bodily desire in a religious sense is always looked upon negatively because it's always related into suffering and causing suffering and what a religious outlook of course does 
is how can we cope with suffering, how can we treat suffering, and how can we overcome ultimately our bodily desires. But Nietzsche is highly critical of the religious outlook here in the sense of, well, desire is precisely the thing that he's going to argue that's at the heart of all creativity and all life upon the earth. And what the religious outlook does has absolutely no relation into creativity in life whatsoever. This is because they have a complete idealistic look upon life. And so they look upon life itself like a mirror, he says, as a mirror's reflection and not upon life itself. Because life itself would be too harsh, because it would ultimately just be all that suffering and all the horrible things that happen in the world. But suddenly you hold up a mirror to it, it looks much better, doesn't it? It doesn't have any of that suffering anymore. In fact, it looks quite pretty and beautiful. And suddenly it looks very picturesque and serene. And you could just imagine yourself in a nice meadow with nice mountains and scenery everywhere quite nice and relaxing atmosphere but that's not what the world is of course what Nietzsche is saying is not this picturesque idealistic landscape like a Bob Ross painting but that's ultimately what religious outlook would like to argue for is that sort of serene Bob Ross outlook and so because they view everything in terms of a mirror and not upon life itself then we have the whole development into the argument to say, well, they are deceivers and are liars, he says, because what they argue for is not life, but this idealistic form of life that ultimately we can therefore attain in, let's say, whatever form of the afterlife in a religious doctrine that we have. But that's not life, again. It's this ideal painting, picturesque image, clouds and so forth, serene imagery. And what ultimately do they have as an individual and their own personality and so forth is that they don't. They don't have any sense of their own belief, their own opinion and their own idea. Ultimately, whatever they do is just have that whole image of the mask come back in again from last section we had the whole idea of mask again it's coming back in here to say well they're ultimately just going to be the advocate and mask for whatever religious outlook and doctrine that they're upholding they're not going to have any actual belief themselves their own belief is a form of manipulation in which then they go to then want to deceive and manipulate other people. And so what we ultimately therefore have is that the religious person is become manipulated into loving this idealistic outlook upon life, away from suffering, away from life itself. Then they adopt the mask of the outlook whatever religion and therefore then they turn around in this very sort of cult-like mentality of it as well to say well suddenly when you adopt all these tenets then any actual ideas you have yourself any opinions you have that make up you don't matter anymore what matters is the religious outlook what matters is the doctrine your entire life your entire value system is gone 
because then suddenly everything that you think, everything that you say has to therefore adhere to the tenets of that doctrine. And then comes the whole aspect again of, well, you're going to then have your own sense of adoption of that onto other people running around saying it's so great it's so marvelous it's so picturesque everybody else come and see how fabulous this is and again everybody gets sucked in by it and why does everybody get sucked in by it because it's so idealistic it's so picturesque as he says there's a whole idea of it's immaculate there's a whole immaculate perception of it and of course wouldn't we all love that in the first place precisely an immaculate outlook and perspective upon the world our own bodies and so on wouldn't that all just be lovely and so all that comes through in the seduction part of it as well and the charm of it from the outlook but Nietzsche's on the defensive as well saying well no we've got to take all this with a pinch of salt here we've got to wake ourselves up we've got to take a bit of the smelling salts slap ourselves in the face a little bit like jeff daniels trying to keep himself awake and dumb and dumber we've got to suddenly see and think about what exactly is going on here at a deeper level and what's lost in the midst of all this and what's lost is of course somebody's own individuality personality who are you who are your opinions and beliefs and then we also have the whole idea of creativity being a creative individual from all that as well into not only who are you as an individual but also creating and sculpting your own ideas and creation itself into different ideas out with that of a religious doctrine and so we also get the interesting line in which Nietzsche would appear to perhaps contradict himself where he says where is innocence where there is will to be getting and for me he who wants to create beyond himself has the purest will on the one hand he who wants to create beyond himself has the purest will you could say is quite religious in an argument so hasn't Nietzsche sort of become a hypocrite there because isn't that the whole point of a religious outlook in the first place to therefore create beyond yourself especially in the spiritual sense and then you also have the whole idea of creation beyond yourself in the afterlife as an idea and so on defense of Nietzsche there is to say well here we can see why the idea of the superman is different because from the religious outlook it's precisely looking upon everything in a very idealistic sense but for Nietzsche and the superman is to sort of reinvigorate life itself and the world itself and not to view everything in such an idealistic way and the superman is to be that point in which we therefore wake up from this nihilistic pessimistic sort of outlook and focus upon ourselves and sort of reinvigorate ourselves as a human species into more creative and productive as a species so that's what it would mean there wants to create beyond himself wants to create beyond himself in his present state as how he sees man in this ultimately pessimistic state wanting to move towards a future state in which everybody's therefore more creative 
and more philosophical in their outlook and approach to life, adopting more ideas for themselves, being more critical of other opinions, wanting to develop their own beliefs. And the last thing that he'd say that we'd want is for us to be emasculated and for everything to be taken away from us and for ultimately you, your desire itself to be completely stripped out of you because it's our desire that precisely causes passion and creativity in the first place without which nothing would get done. We'd just be representatives of other people's ideas in the past. There'd be no new ideas, no new opinions and no progress. And so for the whole concept of immaculate perception is rather fantastic itself. Whenever we are presented with some sort of idealistic picturesque image that then doesn't actually fit up to our actual expectations. There's so many different examples that you can give. Of course, an immediate easy basic one is the criticism against advertising in which they always give you the idealistic image of food. For instance, the perfect looking Big Mac. And then you go to the restaurant to go and buy one. And then you open up the box and you look at it and you go, oh God, that's what I was fantasizing over the whole time. Another idea of immaculate perception, of course, is relationships in which people can get really hung up on the idea of, let's say, a perfect partner, idealistic person that they want to be with and spend the rest of their life with and the whole setting for it, of course, and what's the first date going to be like. And then having the whole expectation about when you meet someone and then they don't fill out that expectation quite as you would like them to. Don't quite tick all the boxes that you would like them to. They've got stubble. That wasn't in my picture in my head. They've got green eyes. Well, I definitely thought about blue instead of green. You could wear contacts, I suppose. And another idea, of course, is historical events and just decades in history, for instance, when you can think about, let's say, the 80s quite recently, is had the whole sort of revival with Stranger Things as a TV show and quite painting the whole 80s as a really nice period to be in because, oh, think of all the pop culture and so forth that all went on in the 80s and the music and everything like that. But then, of course, the counter-argument to that is to say, well, politically, especially in UK and America, when we had Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, that's certainly not a very lovely period at all. And so what's great from using the section as well would be to, to challenge sort of any stereotype, generality, ideality, that's sort of being set up or at least generally accepted by people if this is how it is because Nietzsche is so great in this section because you can do whatever research and so forth that would all go into then challenge that ideality that's been created in the first place to say well aha it's not quite like that at all and in doing so and by challenging all that in the first place then we have all that lovely and wonderful move that he wants us to make in this action towards an affirmation of our desire and creative processes. Many thanks for listening to the episode.
feel free to check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. Also, feel free to drop me an email at my address, dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com. I could also be found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time. <laughs>